Welcome to the Matthew Moran podcast. Here I sit down and talk with some of the best photographers, writers, editors, designers, and publishers working in the visual arts. These conversations will give you an insight into the lives of creative professionals and industry experts, and it is a chance to hear their story and personal journey in a rapidly changing, highly competitive, but hugely exciting field. I've had the pleasure of working with many of my guests over the years and have learned so much from spending time with them, not just working together on projects, but having conversations about what it means to be a creative freelancer, sourcing exciting projects, sharing skills through partnerships, and not losing sight of your goals and dreams. This podcast is my chance to share these stories with you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. My guest today is Stephanie Foote, a wildlife photographer and videographer based just outside Cambridge in England, situated about 50 miles north of London. At 23, Stephanie is not your average wildlife photographer. The industry remains dominated by older men, but she says things are changing, and after graduating from Falmouth University a year ago with a first-class degree in natural history photography, she hit the ground running, working on a number of exciting projects, including a National Geographic-sponsored expedition to Kyrgyzstan, Lithuania and Poland. There, she documented scientists, geographers, conservation biologists and local people working together to guide the launch of a new Rangers Without Borders programme. Closer to home, Stephanie is a contributing photographer to the Canid Project, a conservation initiative that began in Louisiana by photographer and founder Amy Shutt. The organisation's mission is to help raise awareness about wild canids through photo and video stories and educational workshops. The Canid Project now supports Stephanie's fox photography, which examines the complex relationships between humans and red foxes in the UK. She is also a member of the Female Photography Network and has won highly commended awards in both the British Wildlife Photography Awards and the International Garden Photographer of the Year. Stephanie's focus is on visual storytelling, using both stills and video to communicate conservation and environmental awareness. Her hedgehog project shows this beautifully with a lovely collection of photographs you can see on her website and her passion for her subject is reflected in the quality of her images. I met up with Stephanie at her home in Cambridge to talk about the challenges of making a living in this highly competitive field and her hopes, wishes and dreams for the future. We are here um, in, where were you, just south of Cambridge? Yeah, Stapleford, just south. Lovely. Um, thanks so much for inviting me here. Um, I had a bit of a nightmare journey. One of the worst ever to Cambridge. It took me two and a half hours. And uh, it was funny, Stephanie's cooked me, a, uh, well, made me a really nice lunch. And I said to her beforehand, um, you know, in this hot weather, I don't really have much of an appetite. But it being Britain, of course, in the last two days, it got really cold and just chucked it down all the way here. But I made it here in one piece. And um, we had a really nice lunch and a nice chat. And um, now we're going to hear a little bit more about your story. and. Um, Really excited to to hear that and share it with the listeners, um, and also you know to have a, a different type of guest on this podcast is good. You know, I said to you before that um, I wanted it not to be full of older men, which definitely the industry is full of. Um, but yeah, I've struggled a little bit to find women, particularly young women, um, and hopefully I'm going to continue that. So thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
This is something we didn't talk about at lunch, and I was interested in, you know, always interested in how people get into photography um, from a young age. So why don't you start telling us a little bit about that? Okay, so um, I've always had a fascination for nature. So even before I picked up a camera, I was really interested in the natural world. And it's something my parents thoroughly encouraged when we were growing up. And um, a prime example of like my childhood antics was um, in school, lots of the other children used to squash snails in the playground. And I thought snails were great, so I didn't really like that. And I remember <laughs> there was one day I filled, I had one of these old tin pencil cases and I filled it with the snails that were going to get squashed. And I used to bring them home and put them on the vegetable garden. And, and my dad wasn't too pleased about the fact <laughs> there was suddenly this vast population of snails living on the lettuces. <laughs> Um, that's just like a prime example of the kind of thing I did when that's I was a brilliant. kid. So you were a conservationist from a very <laughs> early age. Yeah, pretty much. And um, But then I first picked up a camera when I was quite young. I was actually in year seven, so my first year of secondary school. Mm. Um, my parents got me one of these little disposable cameras. You used to be able to get them in boots. And um, we were going on a school trip. It sounds very exotic, but we were going to Italy, even though it was in secondary school. And um, we went on a history trip. But um, my parents, when I got back, they were going to look through the photos and they're expecting all images of like Pompeii and all its glory and the entire film role was um, pictures of stray dogs so <laughs> I just spent the entire time photographing dogs on the street because okay. I felt sorry for them and it's quite interesting really where I've gone from there to now be taking photos of animals in need and of wildlife so it's like telling their story kind yeah. of thing um so yeah it's always been something I'm really interested in and then it sort of went from there really and like kind of started off a lot as well with my grandmother being French we spent a lot of summers on the farm in France so our relatives have had a farm for many generations mm -hmm. and um, there's amazing wildlife there they farm in a way with big hedgerows and lots of trees and it's not very intense agriculture and you just see pine martins, foxes, hares, wow. um, all kinds of animals and it's just really biodiverse and so I would often try and take pictures and if not pictures I'd be drawing the yeah. animals and the landscape there. And what kind of age are you this at this Point. I would be secondary school, so I was only like 12. Yeah. But also, we were going throughout my childhood, so even I spent my first birthday in France as well, so it's something that I just... I always... First of all, I liked drawing, so I was always drawing pictures of animals. But then after I picked up a camera for the first time, um, I started taking photos, and when I was about 13, 14, I kind of got more serious about it and got a little compact camera it wasn't yeah. amazing but then I got for a levels I then got a DSLR for the first time that my aunt got me but so I'm interested because yeah. you said that it was this, this this disposable camera that you yeah took to Italy it was a film camera and you know most of well, you're are you 23 so yeah. yeah I mean you would have not you know grown up as as in the digital age as a digital photographer and most of the people that I spoke to your age you know would have never used or never even shot a roll of film so you actually have which is interesting but then made the switch into digital after that did you ever shoot any more rolls of film 
Um, yeah, I did actually shoot quite a bit of film because it was um, thoroughly encouraged in our A-levels. So they wanted us to be able to use a manual camera without any kind of um, automated settings. And because my dad had an f- old film camera, I could just use his old Canon yeah. AE-1. It was one of the 35mm film cameras. And I used one of those and I actually did... Uh, transform my sister's bathroom into a uh, dark <laughs> room at one point. Um, when she was away at university, I kind of blacked out the door frame and blacked out the windows with a um, big piece of wood. And so I could then do dark room, like some prints in the garden where you put um, the photo paper down, brilliant. lay flowers and things. And brilliant. So I did that for a bit and it That's was quite so fun. That's so nice. It's so great. I mean, I, you know, I run these workshops, uh, photography workshops, and most of the people... You know, I talked to about being a photographer that grew up on film, and most people that come on my workshops have nev- never shot a roll of film, but also never had that darkroom experience, and it really is quite magic. And I think for many people who have that the first time, when you put your print in the developer and you see it come up, it's a real addiction, and there's, it's a lovely moment, isn't it? It's really nice that, that, that you've had that, and that it was encouraged. Um, you know, I talked to Sam Hobson about this in a previous podcast and actually learning kind of the hard way where you don't have that instant image with all the information, even though that's really useful. And of course, you can learn quickly when you see the picture straight away, when you can see all the data. You know, for example, you know that capturing a bird in flight, you're going to need a shutter speed of over a thousandth of a second. You can see that really quickly. But there's something about learning without seeing that's really useful, I think. So you were into conservation clearly from a young age yeah and and kind of telling stories i mean we've talked about this already about telling stories with pictures but you were doing this kind of maybe unwittingly uh, when you were in pompeii and on your grandmother's farm and that's something that's really kind of continued on hasn't it right up until now is telling stories um with your pictures and is that something that you've done kind of you know naturally consciously or you know being being you know a wildlife communicator essentially is that something that's come quite natural to you I think at first it was probably something subconscious and a lot of my pictures growing up it would have been I was just trying to get like a single nice image and it wouldn't necessarily tell a story but it would often be about something that was important to me so maybe animals or or even plants and things I found interesting but it's more recently that I've really kind of purposefully got into storytelling for nature. So um, more recently I've done, for example, work with the Canid Project where I'm trying to tell stories about fox rescue. So I would um, what is spend... The, what is the Canid Project? So the Canid Project is an educational endeavour to encourage people to understand about the world's canids, so foxes and similar species. And it's based in America and mm. they own a Fox Rescue in Louisiana near Baton Rouge and they rescue um, orphan fox cubs and similar kind of like the Fox Project in the UK yes Um, but they also run workshops so like photography workshops for young people and um, uh, and they do sort of educational articles and similar things just to get people to I guess understand foxes and not necessarily have a negative opinion. Um, An example, Amy, who's the founder, recently said to me is that there was a family who didn't want 
foxes in their garden but after speaking with them they've actually become really interested That's in them great. and they've like she lent them like a camera trap so they can observe foxes in their garden and things so it's just giving people that chance to maybe change their attitude and and learn to live alongside the predator rather than um just try and like uh end conflict by a violent means kind of thing sure and yeah they're such divisive creatures aren't they and this idea that they're vermin or a pest and I think it's very easy to be kind of flippant about this animal that essentially has been persecuted its whole life but has still found a way of surviving you know particularly the urban fox is an incredible success story and you know I, I read recently that there's you know those people that do want to mean harm to a fox or perhaps want to get rid of it because it's a pest it doesn't do any good because another fox immediately will move into that fox's territory so basically the foxes are here to stay so we have to learn how to live with them a little bit more compassionately I think um, yeah. and that sounds like it's what that what the Kenya project is about so what are you doing with them uh, exactly how did that how did you make that connection so it started out with, I actually emailed Amy, Amy Shutt, who's a photographer in Louisiana, and she's the founder of the charity. Um, and I was emailing her for advice about um, job hunting after uh, graduating from university. But um, I'd already been speaking to her a bit on Instagram, which is a great platform for like networking with mm. other photographers. And um, she just offered that I be part of the Kena project. So... Um, thanks to that I kind of got involved and I she was particularly interested with foxes in London because there's just this amazing population of urban foxes in London mm. and so because I live quite close to London it was only um like an hour to get into London and my dad works there so I could get there quite easily with like borrowing a lift off him if I needed to and um I just started researching foxes as much as possible and um, originally it was just kind of, I was researching the foxes and planning ideas where we could take photos of them. And then I started doing kind of my own photo story alongside that. So I photographed foxes in cemeteries in like urban estates and different areas around London. And um, also I went along to the Fox Project in Kent and I spent a week working in their wildlife rescue ambulance, um, helping with actual fox hands on like with the fox rescue while taking photos and video wow. at the same time so and amy like helps fund these kind of things for me so it makes it all possible really That's brilliant and um and also they run workshops so um helping to like plan those as well yeah um that's great yeah. and i mean all of these you know if um for the listeners out there you should definitely check out uh, Stephanie's Instagram page got some lovely pictures of foxes, and as and as I understand it, this is you know red, relatively recent. This is not something you've been doing for the last five or six years. You know, you've got all of this content, beautiful fox shots in and around you know the cities, um, quite in, in quite a short space of time, um, and it's hard. You know, again, we were talking about this. You, you know, people see foxes all the time, and one would assume that it's easy to to take pictures of them, but it's not. You know, they move so quickly and and they, they have to eat. They're not interested in having their pictures taken. So, um, yeah, well done. You've got some, like, really, really great stuff. And have you got a kind of... Is there a plan with, you know, how long this you're going to be involved with that? Or is it just... Do you think it might be just ongoing, providing them content? You also mentioned video. Um, I think it's an ongoing thing. And with the video, it's like we've all, like, got footage and we're hopefully going to put something together nice. with it. Um, 
And so I don't know what the ultimate goal will be because um, Amy is similar to me. We both have a lot of like bright ideas of amazing projects we could do and mm. it's quite inspiring. There's always something new, but it means like there's so many things in the works that I don't know what it will result in first. But also with the fox photography in general, I think it's something that will be ongoing and I'd like to make my own film about the foxes because I've really got to know them. I started photographing foxes in January and at first I was going every week to photograph them. Um, and I I actually made quite a few friends through the project. So I befriended a grave digger who's been great. Um, and he, he regularly messages me to update me great. how the foxes are doing. So good to have a network um, and some yeah. eyes on the ground, isn't it? Yeah, and he and, and loads of the people who work in different areas. So, like, I, I'm always... I always make sure I speak to people I see um, where I'm photographing foxes because they're the ones that know the best and funniest stories about the foxes. Like, they can tell me when they were born, how old they are. Um, that I even know which one's which one's mother and um, which ones are siblings. And I can now recognise them. When I first started the project, I could not recognise individual foxes. But now... Um, I can honestly tell which one is which and I've given them like names one of them another photographer had already <laughs> named so um, and it's just really fascinating and there's actually been one point where I was sat having my lunch and a fox came over and fell asleep um, <laughs> within metres and it was just asleep and it was just an amazing experience but of course it's quite um, controversial as well because um, in some areas of London because so many people feed foxes by hand mm. it uh, can actually cause an issue and that's something with the kind of project we're trying to educate people to like foxes but also what what aspects of um, interacting with foxes can be a risk. Yeah. So um, if too many people hand feed them, um, they sometimes become quite tame. And it means, A, if people don't like foxes, um, they're likely to um, complain. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, like, one family might be feeding foxes in their garden, the next family along don't like foxes. Sure. So they'll call in pest control because they think it's a problem animal because they'll be hanging around because there's food there. So, mm. of course, they're going to wait around there. So you just have to be careful what you do, I think. And, yeah. like, people who do feed foxes and so on in their gardens and such, just make sure it's in an area where you know it's not going to affect them and... To be honest, it's not recommended to, like, feed them by hand at all. I never would feed them straight out of my hand. It's just... Because they can't tell the difference between fingers or sausages. Yeah, and... So <laughs> that's what people always say to me. They don't know the difference. And um, I think a lot of people do it because they think, oh, it'll be exciting and fun. But it's better for people who do do that, just leave it, like, in a tree stump somewhere. And sure. Just, you know, stand back so they don't fully associate. Um, totally. And I think that's really important. In bit of information because you have to remember that even though they are habituated and you see them a lot and they're very tame, they are still a wild animal. And again, you know, I've been doing a lot of research myself about foxes recently, and uh, I read that. I mean, it's quite obvious, you know. Then you just can't tame a fox, even if you have one from you know a young cub. Uh, you could have it in your house. By the time it gets to four months, it would just be tearing up the house, going crazy, you know, because their you know genes are so powerful. In terms of them wanting to be out there in the wild, it's still a wild animal, so it definitely has to be um, treated with, with respect, that's for sure. Um, I was interested in what you said about contacting Amy after you graduated. And sort of, so going back to your course, um, what made you want to do this course in the first place? Not many people 
who who I know who are wildlife photographers study. Um, so yeah, tell us a bit about why you wanted to do it, and and then also the course itself and how it's helped. Yes. Yeah, so um, as I said, growing up, I really enjoyed like photography and wildlife, and I was never quite sure what I wanted to do at university because. I found um, learning in a classroom, although geography and biology and so on fascinated me, and I did quite well in them, I found it difficult to learn in that kind of environment where you're just sat with text on a board, reading out a textbook, um, copying notes, um, memorising facts. It was just, it wasn't really for me. So I like to learn things by doing them, and um, that's very much like the style of learning for me. And I can't remember, I think... My mum found a brochure and I looked at it when I was in maybe secondary school. And I remember seeing this course and just thinking, oh, that's what I want to do. Mm. Like, I I didn't have any idea there was a natural history photography course. And um, uh, I guess I was naive in a way because I didn't actually realise at the time how hard it is to make it in this industry. <laughs> but um, That's good though. Ignorance is bliss, right? You just keep going. <laughs> yeah, so I just got it in my head. I'm going to be a wildlife photographer and maybe videographer and I just got it in my head like that's what I'm gonna do and it was kind of all consuming like every spare moment was spent like researching photography going to wildlife photography year or exhibitions mm-hmm. um, attending talks and th- so on and I was just learning as much as I could and I just got intent on on going to the course and um, I remember at sixth form, I actually got in trouble because we're supposed to apply to more than one university because they said, oh, if you don't get in, you need a backup choice. Yeah. And I said, I'm not I'm not going to have a backup wow. choice. I'm going to Falmouth. If they don't let me in, I'll camp outside. So, um, yeah, I got really intent on going. And, um, yeah, so that was... Fortunately, this... you got in. Yeah. You didn't have to camp outside. Did, yeah. didn't have to protest to get into the uni. <laughs> Yeah, I did. And um, in terms of like the kind of things we studied on the course, um, we did, um, we learned how to use different photographic and video equipment. So it's really useful for people who can't necessarily afford their own equipment because they have a big storeroom with all kinds of cameras. They have Nikon, Canon, they have a lot of camera equipment and um, they also have underwater housing and so on for because some people opt in to do a marine side of the course. Um, And it just means even if you don't have all your own camera lenses or equipment, you can borrow out cameras and learn how to use them, learn the skills that employers might need, say um, the BBC who are hiring cameramen and so on you might then be able to say oh well I've been trained how to use these kind of complex equipment audio equipment I've been trained sound recording so you learn all the practical skills you would need so there's a lot of focus on the technical side yeah and um, they had really cool inductions in the studio so you'd go into a photographic studio and they'd do an induction with um, technical experts on different pieces of camera equipment Um, another cool thing that I really enjoyed they had is microscopes that you can use for photography Mm -hmm. Um, it was microscopy where um, you could attach a DSLR body to a tripod and um, onto the um, microscope Mm. and basically you could get amazing pictures of minuscule life forms that I mean to get that normally would be so expensive no one's going to be able to own their own um, microscope of that variety (laughs) so yeah it gave you chances to try out these things um, and also training in software so like the Adobe Creative Suite Um, which again is all really useful stuff yeah so they had really good 
computers as well that don't freeze every five minutes on <laughs> Premiere. Um, so you've got like Photoshop, Premiere, and we also had the option to do like Adobe courses. So I did one in InDesign. So right. magazine layout. And you could also do that. That was within the course as well. So it's kind of all the skills in terms of like doing things yeah. that you'd need. Um, That's really interesting because I know one of the questions, you know, that I asked you was, you know, how did it did it set you up for, you know, how are you going to make a living out of all this stuff? It's all very well having the skills, but how are you going to get work? And um, even though, you know, we mentioned mentioned it before, you know, learning stuff like the the creative suite, which is, you know, it's amazing. And, you know, the nice thing about learning something like InDesign is that there are there are lots of crossovers just with the shortcuts and the way things work. And so you can, in a way, sort of teach yourself, you know, throughout that creative suite with Premiere, with, uh, you know, or, or I'm using now Audition with these podcasts. You know, I didn't, this is this is great because I'm getting my 50 quid's worth. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, have, having those skills is really good. But in terms of setting you up for, did they talk about the business side and about how to get out there and, and, and make a living from it? So they sort of touched on some of the business side when I was there, um, but it was primarily like focused on skills and not necessarily how exactly to make money from them. Yeah. And of course, there's no blueprint how sure. to do that. Um, one of the good things was they had um, graduates come in and do talks. And so these people could help us with kind of ideas where, where you could get jobs. And it was quite inspiring as well. But I definitely think um, it was skills focused and not, it didn't really necessarily give you it didn't teach you how to do say tax returns or yeah or, or or just skills you need and like how to find clients it didn't really that's something you've got to learn for yourself and sure. they and they don't tell you um but um yeah like they have quite a lot of graduates every year and i just don't think maybe there's not that much need for that many people in the industry every year because there's not going to be the jobs for yeah, it yeah sure um but i do think the key benefit really of studying on that course is that you're surrounded by like-minded people and um something i really found useful is a lot of the people i've been friends with through that course they push you to become Mm. better than you already Mm. are um and like a lot of my friends from falmouth who if i speak to them now i can be sort of down the dumps not sure what project to do next um not sure where it's all going (laughs) and you can speak to them they're just so inspiring they have all these cool ideas for projects and it just keeps you motivated yeah and it really pushes you to work hard and be like the best you can be and so i think it was a really good benefit because in those three years my photography improved so much brilliant um so although it doesn't really prepare you and graduation is quite difficult because transitioning into the working world it it doesn't i feel give that much support for that sure but, um but that didn't seem to be a problem for you because i mean you just take one look at your website and it's only was well, just a year ago that you graduated and you've got quite a nice um well a, a sort of nice building blocks already that are going on and you've got you know I think it seems that you're quite tenacious and and getting out there and sticking your neck out isn't really a problem for you and it might be a problem for others but I think yeah you're right that's something that people can't teach but yeah you've already got involved where you've already mentioned the Kenya project um and you also went to Kyrgyz Kyrgyzstan right so yeah. tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved in that project so I got involved with a National Geographic funded project um 
because I'd been attending. So one thing I recommend to anyone who's graduating, and I wish I'd done it sooner, is all the networking events. Mm-hmm. I actually wrote a blog about it from HTTL um, uh, recently about how networking events are really important. And there's really cool ones you can do for like photography, like Wild Screen in Bristol. Um, but there's also ones like Explore in London, where you can meet all kinds of different explorers and researchers and uh, science people. And um, it's really good because it means you're not confining yourself to something industry specific. Yeah. You're meeting people who might necessarily want a photographer, like that might not be a skill they have themselves. It might be they're focusing on the research side, so they want to work with a photographer or filmmaker or an artist. And so it's a really good thing to go to. And I went there and I met Joshua Powell, who's a National Geographic explorer. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think I was asking him about joining the Explorers Club, which is kind of like the Royal Geographic Society right. in the UK um, for uh, networking opportunities. And because it's like a really inspiring club where they do all kinds of projects around the world. Great. And um, I then I spoke to him briefly afterwards and I said, oh, you know, if you ever need a photographer for one of these projects, I'd be really excited to do that. That would be amazing. And um, I got a message a few months later and he just said, oh, what are you doing um, next month kind of thing? And I was like, oh, not sure, just freelance stuff. And then he said, oh, do you want to go to Kyrgyzstan um, to be part of the Rangers Without Borders team? So it was a project photographing wildlife rangers on almost like the forgotten front line of conservation because there's a lot of projects going on in um, African countries and um, in like South America and the rainforest and so on. But there wasn't that much going on um, in places like Kyrgyzstan about the wildlife rangers working there. So um, he organised this project to do some research about their rights. So, like, what kind of workers' rights they have, how it all works. Um, Really interesting stuff. And they just wanted to have a creative element as well. So, like, multidisciplinary expedition. So was it your job to document what was going on, not just about the wildlife, but actually the whole project? Yeah, 100%. It was more, like, documentary style than I've done before and it was something I really enjoyed actually so I was photographing like the work they were doing so even people just like filling out surveys trying to photograph that in a creative way yeah um but also (laughs) there was like all kinds of wildlife and it was just amazing knowing we were staying somewhere where there were snow leopards just like on the next mountain kind of thing yeah um did you see anything I didn't see a snow leopard very elusive (laughs) but we saw like that we actually got snowed in in this place we were staying and a tiny village called Akshirak like up um, in the Tianshan Mountains near the border with China. Wow. And um, when it snowed, you could see tracks of um, wolf packs in oh, the snow. Amazing. And, so there's um, some good photo opportunities yeah. there in fresh snow. And we saw Argali, which are like Marco Polo sheep. They're really endangered species. Wow. Um, and they were really amazing to see. And lots of marmots. There were marmots mm-hmm. everywhere, which I thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed seeing. Um, so it was really, really amazing wildlife everywhere. Um, but yeah, the focus was kind of life there and the ranges and so I was photographing like the families, like the, um, I spent some time with the school kids who went yeah. to school then. I was photographing them. They were telling me some of them could speak quite good English as well. And we had a Russian translator. So it would be right. like relaying through him what they were saying to me. Yeah. And how are you photographing people? I mean, I'm interested because I've always, I think a rhetoric I've mentioned about myself in the past is one of the reasons why I like photographing animals is because I don't enjoy photographing people, but it's, be- it's 
become more and more involved in my photography as you know we've talked about storytelling and also showing people in the landscape you know that kind of thing is is really important but are you very comfortable with it um I used to not be at all so I didn't like it that much and sometimes it was quite difficult like if it was in a formal setting yeah it's a different skill isn't it yeah if if um if say it's like a line of rangers and I had to photograph each one it, I don't like that. But if it's like they're in the field doing what they love... Sure. ...and it's very relaxed and it's spontaneous, that I find fine. I really enjoy doing that. Mm. Um, and also, with the kids, it's a completely different story. Kids, <laughs> yeah. are, so, kids are so easy to photograph because they want to be photographed. They want, they're having they a complete laugh. And there was one um, little girl who um, I built snowmen with because we were snowed in. We had nowhere to go. And... Um, she, I let her actually use my camera. It sounds a bit risky just handing over my camera, but she hadn't used a camera before, so I just, like, handed my camera to her and let her take a photo of her Great. brother. And, like, it was just... I think they just really enjoy their interest. It's something interesting to for them to see and learn. And, um, yeah, so with kids, it's a completely different story, very easy. Um, and also, I think... If it's someone, you, it's about building a relationship with the people yeah, first. absolutely. So, like, with um, some of my other projects where I photograph people, I make a point of talking to them first and befriending them. And then, sure. But it's obviously not always an option when you're on sure. expedition in a rushed environment. Mm-hmm. That's, um, that's great. And, and with that project, so you were there for a month, so you must have taken a lot of images. I was actually there for... Uh, about two weeks. Oh, okay. But yeah, I took a lot of photos and then I came home for a short while and then went back out to Poland and Lithuania where we did the second section. Oh, wow. So, but yeah, it was um, really cool and we took a lot lot of footage and photos as a team. And tell me a bit about your process because I'm always interested in this as a photographer that I I think all of us, we spend like a lot of time on our own. And it's one of the things about nature photography, just by the very nature of it, it's when you're photographing, mostly you want to be on your own, you know, two of you, it's double the disturbance. And then when you get back home, you're on your own in front of a laptop, computer screen, or processing. And I kind of, when I'm there, I often think about other photographers on their own, <laughs> going through loads and loads and loads of pictures. And even though it's like, it's a lovely job and, you know, we're not complaining about it, it can be like quite tedious. I find anyway, but maybe it's different for you. I don't know. Tell me a bit about your process when um, you come back. I do find the editing process is probably one of the processes I don't enjoy as much mm-hmm. because uh, you're not getting any exercise. You're just sort of <laughs> stuck indoors and it's not very nice just looking at the screen, but it's quite enjoyable when you see an image that you think's come out really lovely and yeah. um, you get the opportunity to just review what you've done. I think for me... The aspect I really don't like is organising the photos and backing them up. Sure. And um, I must have hundreds of thousands of images that are sort of sat on a hard drive that need to be sifted through and uh, narrowed down so I'm not taking up so much storage. Sure. But it just it's one of those jobs that just I never get round to because <laughs> I don't like it's just not an enjoyable thing. But um, I think you're probably speaking for most photographers yeah. as well. 
Um, one of the things I do try and do is like um, with my photography friends is sometimes we will meet up and we'll be editing um, and we'll be editing in the same room so you have someone to chat to while That's you're doing great. it because yeah. I find I can definitely multitask while while editing pictures um, and something I sometimes do as well is listening to podcasts yeah. like this um, <laughs> So you can I listen to yourself good. after this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's quite useful because it means you're learning something. Yeah. Or even like a YouTube video and it will be how to learn something in Adobe. Like um, I'm trying to learn more and more about Premiere so mm-hmm. I can edit, like condense my workflow when editing video. So I might have a YouTube video playing, which one which the audio you can sort of tell, learn something without sure. seeing the visuals. yeah. And then I'll be editing my photo at the same time. It just means I feel like I'm using a better use of my time. That's brilliant. And what would we do without YouTube, right? And learning like those little things, you know. On, on, on when I when I produce these podcasts, I put out little teasers, and I learned through After Effects how to put a little sound wave and put it on transparent, and then crossing over to Premiere. And there's no way I would have ever been able to have done that just by like you know trying it. You just you know type it in on YouTube, and then there's some generous person who's put it up exactly how to do it it's such a treat <laughs> yeah it's definitely really helpful and it's just an easier way to learn something as well because you really see the step by step rather than necessarily just reading a book and seeing it in like a tiny text yeah. with no image you don't really know what you're doing and... but I don't know about you I'm, I'm impatient if I open a video that tells you how to do something and you see the video is like nine minutes long it's like I can't be bothered <laughs> to go through this I just want to know in one minute how to do it yeah, I do. Um, I often skip through when there's like an introduction yeah. section. Uh, I just skip through straight to what I need to know and just get that done with. <laughs> Some of these guys would just like the sound of their own voice and want to show you their techniques. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you come back from these trips with, um, you know, hundreds of images. And, and what what is it that they want or need? I mean, do you process do you do the first edit and send them a selection and then you they select images that they need for their campaign is that how it works so what we've done is i select a selection of my best work that i think would be good in a publication or online and i send that to josh who's our expedition leader who got the funding from that geo and secured that for our our project and then he sends it to them and um, they let us know what they want with it. We need to write, like, for each photo, you have to write, like, a little caption, like, who the photo is of, a bit of the story behind it. Um, and so we have to send them off to Nat Geo and then they decide what they want to use. But um, so until Nat Geo has decided whether they want to use it, there's, like, a... Um, they, they have first right to use the images because they provided the funding. Sure. So I can't actually use any of my photos until a three-month period has ended since the trip. Right. Um, so that's how it works, so that their story is like new and fresh when it comes out if they decide to um, print. And we've actually put like a sort of application. You can apply to have it in the magazine. Um, and so our photos were all brought to the headquarters in New right. York uh, or was I can't remember if it was New York or Washington, Washington yeah. sorry and um, so they're brought there and they then probably go through hundreds of applications yeah. all the time and they decide what they want to use so anyway there's a good chance you could get something published yeah a year after graduating which is pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it was just great to be involved with the project because a lot of the other people on there were really amazing people to work with yeah. and I made some really good friends it was 
especially like on the Poland leg, we had a larger team for Poland. Right. And um, it was great meeting everyone because we all got along so well. And what, um, what kind of stuff? Were you photographing very much the same stuff when you were in Poland? I mean, different country, but was the brief the same? It's very much just documenting what's going on. Poland, my role was actually quite different. So I was focusing more on wildlife. Um, so in Kyrgyzstan, I was the only photographer. So I, ha I was responsible for all photography. So I was photographing some wildlife, but mainly rangers. Whereas in um, Poland, um, it was more variety because there was a larger team. So there was a, a few filmmakers who were producing a, a documentary. And then there was a couple of people who could take photos. So one photographer was doing like more behind the scenes stuff, like of the team setting things up. And I was photographing more wildlife. So I was photographing like the white stalks that are simply okay. everywhere. And we went to Bayavesa Forest. And um, I every morning I was up like just after 2am and we had to go and look for European bison. Wow. But um, in the summer, it's actually not a great time to see them okay. because in winter they come out the forest and they the farmers leave like food out, supplementary food out right. for them. Um, so in winter you can see them quite, quite well um, in the golden hour um, yeah. and they don't just flee off into forest sure um did you but, see them yeah we did, did. see them oh, well. and it was amazing but it was quite tricky because it when we saw them it was always very dark very dark and they're very shy and you have to just be careful like because they're quite a large animal you just have to make sure you keep your distance sure. enough and like stay near the vehicle and they're quite sensitive so like you couldn't even shut the vehicle door because right. the noise of that would disturb yeah. them um, so it was often from a distance, but it was really amazing to see them. And, and that sounds um, like such a great experience as well, that kind of 2am, you know, what are you going to see in the woods? You know, it must be a real thrill. Yeah, it was actually really fun. We had a lot of fun and we had two hire cars so we could um, drive and look around at animals and things. And there was a, there was um, one of our, one of the guys on our team speaks Polish and he chatted with loads of people in the village and um one guy who was actually a hunter i think had one of these platforms that he right. normally uses for hunting but he just let us use it for wildlife photography and Brilliant. then two of the guys were sat in there and they saw a wild wolf oh, wow. which is un simply normally unheard of oh. for tourists who are only there for like a week but and yeah we saw one during our project um and i went up there later and i saw it was quite cool i saw a fox hunting in the long grass oh, and from wow. above it looks very different because you're above the scent line, they just can't tell that you're there. Yeah. And so the fox was jumping in and out of long grass and it looked amazing. And you never you never normally get that view, you'd sort of see a glimpse of it. And yeah. once it was in the long grass, you can't see. Wonderful. So it was really good fun. And um, yeah, it was very different kind of atmosphere. And, and I find um, traveling most countries like in Europe, it, it just feels like home to me because, um, because of going to France so much growing up. Yeah. Um, it, it sort of feels like just a home, like That's a great. home away from home. I feel very at home. I don't really feel like I'm traveling anywhere exotic. It's just like all one place to me. So it's quite, it's quite nice and homey there. And it reminded me a bit, the rural setting reminded me a bit of where my grandmother was oh. from and, and um, where our family now lives. Um, it's very remote, kind of one of the few areas you go to where there's like more depopulation than repopulation. Everyone's moving to cities. So, like, where my family's from, it's, like, most of the houses around where um, they are, it's, like, most of the houses, people are moving out and then the house is for sale for, like, a decade and no-one's bought it. Um, that sounds lovely. So, I mean, it, even though it's, you know, exotic because, you know, I, I mean, I say exotic, I, th I think, like, anything that's not UK is exotic. But yeah. Of course, we do have exotic stuff here. But um, you... And I think that's probably really good 
to experience that because it means that you're that much more relaxed and you're not looking over your shoulder because if you do feel comfortable and relaxed, ultimately your pictures are going to be better. Um, but moving away from that and coming back to the UK, you're also really active here locally. And, um, you know, I've mentioned your your hedgehog pictures, which are, are really lovely. Again, I encourage the, the listeners, and we'll put your website up in in the in the notes afterwards, and you'll have your page on the podcast, so everyone can 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 find you and find these images and find you on Instagram. Um, but and you you use um, a lot of wide angle images, and is, is that a fisheye lens that you yeah. use? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Stephanie's got some really nice pictures uh, of a, of hedgehogs, and you're doing this local ongoing project which is, is it quite close to your house from where we are now? Yeah, it's only like a 20-minute drive or something like right. that. Um, and how did that start? It was, I think, there's a because I'm based in Cambridge, it's quite different. Like, a lot of graduates from my course, they go to Bristol to be based because um, Bristol is amazing for wildlife filmmaking. Sure. Um, so for, like, the creative side, it's amazing for that. Cambridge is sort of known as a conservation research capital, mm-hmm. like, there's so many people I've met who have moved to Cambridge to get jobs in conservation research. Yeah, well, Fauna and Flora International, my friend who works there, he's, yeah, they're based right here in Cambridge, aren't they? Yeah, like there's, um, so we have the David Attenborough building, which is the, just an amazing venue. And um, there's like a forum people can join. And um, they have all kinds of events on that you see advertised like Flora and Fauna International. There's also traffic mm-hmm. um, based there, like they monitor in- illegal wildlife trade. Um, there's bird life. There's so many organisations based there. And um, I was at some kind of event. I can't actually remember what event it was, <laughs> but it was some kind of networking event or public speaking event with all different people. And I met the trustees of the Hedgehog Hospital there. And... Um, it, it just I listened to them talking about their work and they were so passionate about their work and um, you could just tell like they put everything into their, into their work there and then uh, it actually happened that through my part-time job working in a warehouse and sorting exam papers we someone in my mum's office was working at the Shepherd Hospital and then through that she then got me a contact there that I then contacted and said, oh, I'd love to do a project with you guys. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something I wanted to do as like a personal project. Yeah. And um, I think it's always really good to have personal projects on the go all the time. And, and if, especially when you're, because if you're not photographing when you're back here, because you're just doing, you know, processing or writing applications or trying to get sources of funding or just trying to get work, it's really nice to be able to actually, you know what, I can have a break and, and, and go and photograph and that could be anything, slugs in your back garden or hedgehogs in a rescue centre. But what I really loved, you know, when, when we had some communication before we started this and you talked about, you know, I said I really love your hedgehog pictures and you described it as like you love doing it so much that almost like the, the photographs, they just kind of came naturally or incident, incidental and that passion seems to have rubbed off on you and you can really see that in those pictures. Yeah, 100%. And it's almost like I originally sort of intended to just do like a photo story. And then having met everyone who works there, they're so passionate and they're amazing people. And like, 
you know, when they have the baby hedgehogs, every hour they're feeding them. So for weeks, they they don't sleep for more than like 50 minutes. Um, so, you know, this is complete passion wow, for their job. And they work so hard to make a difference. But just, sorry, just just um, explain a little bit about what, what do they do? What does oh, this, yeah, I, yeah, it's just something that I kind of thought, you know, the listeners don't know, we've talked about this already, but so this is a hedgehog charity essentially that, that helps injured animals and and rescues them and tries to rehabilitate them I'm assuming yeah, yeah so basically they do a number of things they do education so they educate the public about like things you can do to help hedgehogs like cutting a little hole in your garden fence to make sure hedgehogs can um like pass through different gardens migrate between yeah. gardens and basic things like that like pesticides to avoid in the garden right. because they're not great for hedgehogs um but they also do hedgehog rescue um, so a lot of hedgehogs come in that have been attacked by people's pet dogs. Right. Um, we had a really sad case, um, actually just a couple of days ago when I was there, um, mother hedgehog was hit by a car mm. and someone, fa- a passerby found, um, three baby hedgehogs crying beside their dead mother. Oh no. And, and this kind of thing happens all the time. There's yeah. so many orphans at this time of year. So they get a lot of tiny baby hedgehogs and they just, they can't look after themselves. Mm. Um, and so it's really important thing they do because otherwise every time a hedgehog gets hit on the road, if it has babies, you're actually not, it's not just one road kill, it's resulting in like five hedgehogs down. And, um, and so there's quite an impact there. Mm -hmm. And although hedgehogs aren't like super, super endangered, they are in decline. Absolutely. Long-term decline. That's been um, well publicised over many years. Yeah. And if, if these issues don't change and people don't take small actions, like, um, especially with like new builds, a lot of the new builds you see around here, they've been going up. They build brick wall fences around the right. gardens, and you know it's not like a wooden panel fence. Sure. It's solid brick wall. Yeah. No wildlife hedgehogs, but even other wildlife isn't going to be able to get through there yeah. very easily. And that and goes so... back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, with 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 the foxes. And I think it's, I think okay, like you said, you know, they're not endangered, and foxes are not endangered. Yeah, and and I think we can definitely obsess too much about you know, East African wildlife or wildlife in the Amazon or in, in the Arctic or, you know, tigers in India, of course, they're really important issues. But I think it's I think it's equally as important to educate people at home about stuff that is in their own environment, hedgehogs, foxes. You know, foxes are another one I read recently that their average lifespan in the cities is only 18 months. It's really short and cars are such a big problem. You know, you think about how long their evolution is and cars you know been around for such a small amount of time animals just haven't really learned how to deal with cars which is really sad you know and they just get wiped out and i think that kind of education work that that these organizations are doing and that you're doing with your fox pictures hopefully i'm doing as well is is letting people know that these are important animals and they serve a purpose you know in, in in the ecosystem they have a very very important role so i think that kind of you know, education is massive. And if you can do that really well and, you know, take some captivating pictures and tell really, really good stories and, you know, particularly for young people, if you can get them interested like you were at a young age, then it's only better for those for those species, even though you know, they're not the lions, the tigers, the polar bears. It is really important. 
Yeah, it definitely isn't. Because otherwise people get so excited about exotic wildlife, they don't appreciate what they have in their own garden. Yeah. And um, that's something that's really good with the Hedgehog Project because they're, like, making an effort when kids visit. They have... There's a zoo nearby, so a lot of kids go into the Shepworth Wildlife Park. But when groups of children come, they often then see a hedgehog as well, and they're taught about conservation of hedgehogs, like, right. in their own area. So it really encourages kids to um kind of get involved with conservation on the doorstep and um yeah it's just it's a really good project because they really care for the rehabilitation process as well so once they rescue these hedgehogs they make a real effort for them to have a successful future in the wild yeah um that's great and then also you're getting involved in that right now steph showed me earlier she's got a hedgehog in her garden so you're like you know you're not just out there photographing and leaving or taking them on yourself which is brilliant yeah so um a lot of the hedgehogs are released where they're from so into their home territory but sometimes they have tiny newborn hedgehogs that were just found like beside a motorway or um you know where they're from has become a housing estate or they can't go back to where they're from because it's just not a great right. for example gardens with a big dog that like yeah. attack their mother <laughs> and so they're orphans that's not really a great place to then release them again um so they have like a program where people can apply and doing my photography project I thought oh well our garden's really good because we let our garden go quite overgrown it's quite (laughs) messy down the end of the garden perfect for wildlife yeah so great for hedgehogs and we normally don't actually mow half the lawn because I know a lot of people are like obsessive about having dead short lawn everywhere in the summer when there's wildflowers we have like a policy of we mow like in a circle round so we normally have lots of like long grass bits Um, And it's really good for animals that way. Um, And so it just means we have a nice safe place for the hedgehogs to go into. Um, So that, so they do like, they survey people's gardens, check they're safe for hedgehogs. And then you have them for two weeks and then they get released into the wild by just taking the fence away so they can go of their own accord. They're used to the area. They get a chance to adjust to the temperature. Sure. Um, And it's quite fun because although we never really see them because they sleep during the day, we use the infrared camera to observe them at night. And each one we've had has had very different character and personality. (laughs) So we had uh, one called... Uh, Pongo and he was always attacking the infrared camera knocking it over and exploring everything very curious whereas the one we have at the moment which was named Mildred um, <laughs> she um, doesn't really do a lot are you making up these names or is this the centre no they, they give they give them names often the people who bring them in will give them names as well actually I remember so. now seeing that one picture of all the boxes and on your website and is that are those are those hedgehog homes are they actually in there and all their names are on the boxes yeah so they have so many hedgehogs in that they actually use these big storage boxes with air holes in right and there's like a section for the hedgehog to nest in at the other end there's like food and water amazing and then they write the names on them some some like they don't all have names they sometimes just get given names to make it easier to tell which one's which of course they have like num like they have a number as well, so you know exactly like what health problems are wrong with that one. But it just makes it easier to refer to them if you just have some kind of funny name. It's much easier to say than try and memorize numbers and things. Yeah, so of course. More memorable and gives it a bit of personality. Yeah. And are you hoping to fo- and it's going to be challenging? You're hoping to photograph this one in your garden. You know, getting up sort of one two in the morning and one of one of I've had. A little bit of experience photographing hedgehogs um, for my Hampstead Heath book, and and I, I went with the ecologist from Hampstead Heath, and he 
would, you know, we'd find them with torchlight. And one of the benefits, even though it's kind of sad for the animal because it's probably scared, is that when you shine a torch on it, it does freeze. So that's how we were able to get pictures of it. You know, obviously its defence mechanism is just to stay still. So maybe you'll get some opportunities to document that in your garden. Yeah, so with the previous hedgehogs we had on the night of their release, I stayed up for a long time waiting to try and photograph them with a camera flash. But um, in the end, I was concerned that they weren't going to... Because they didn't seem to be coming out as when they normally did. So I went indoors well, why just would to they? see. They've got a nice warm bed and food every day and yeah. water. So I, I do want to, but it's quite tricky because they're quite shy and I just don't want to disturb them either so um I sometimes try and have like a trigger release and I've been trying mm. to like if they happen to walk past but unfortunately they haven't actually walked past yet in the <laughs> night um it's a but, lot of work isn't it yeah and so much time trying to get those types of shots but we do have a really good population of hedgehogs in our garden now because they seem to be thriving. And like my dad was cleaning the other day down the end of the garden, he picked up a big plank and there was a hedgehog nesting underneath oh, wow. it. So he had to just quickly put it all back again. Um, but so I think there will be opportunities to actually photograph them in the wild once they've settled and in. It'll be but... just be a lovely way of completing, you know, the story. And another really good example, and again, this is something I talked with Sam Hobson about, is you know, telling a complete story with images, that will make it you know, much more marketable rather than just taking one nice shot of a hedgehog. Um, you've got this narrative that that's what you know, magazines and book publishers are looking for. They're looking for stories and, and how images can be engaging. And it's not about taking one banging picture, but you know, really nice. Obviously, you still have to do it creatively. And I, I really do love your, your use of that lens. Um, I think it tells the story really nicely. Yeah, the fisheye lens is great because it gives you a bit of perspective about yeah. the surroundings and, and where you are actually taking the pictures, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we're slowly coming to an end. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit about you being you know, a female wildlife photographer. And, you know, my experience, there aren't that many out there. So I was really happy when you said yes to this podcast. And, um, you know, just wanted to talk a bit about how is that experience for you and, and um, you know, do you, have you come up against any barriers as a result of it? You know, do you find that people are welcoming? Um, I know you mentioned to me this story about the, the, the BBC or, um, wildlife cameraman series that kind of annoyed you because it was all men. But um, you seem to just be getting on with it just fine and continuing to stick your neck out and get work and stuff. But, um, yeah, what is it like? I think one of the issues is sometimes that things like networking events, sometimes I do feel that I could ask someone a question, say a speaker, and because of my gender, it seems like I get a completely different answer than if one of my friends, male friends goes and asks a similar yeah. question, they'll suddenly come back with a much more serious kind of professional answer. Yeah. Um, so sometimes it's just that kind of impression of not being taken seriously. Yeah. Um, and there's all kinds of issues with it. Um, but it's just something that I think is changing and it is improving all the time. Yeah. And it's great that there's groups out there that help to um, sort of discourage these issues. Yeah. Um, and it's... The thing is, I think it's the same across a lot of industries. So even in the conservation sector in general, it's a bit of an issue. Uh -huh. um, I have friends who work in, in conservation and they've come across all kinds of issues. One wrote like a research paper 
and someone emailed a question about the paper and they said, dear sir, just uh, assuming, <laughs> you know, assuming that yeah. the person who wrote it and, um, but it's just, it's just really common little things, but I do think it's, it's across a lot of industries and, and perhaps more so in, um, wildlife photography and certain other industries. Yeah. Um, something I noticed from my course is that the majority of people in my year group, it seemed in fact, in a lot of the year groups on the course, it seemed like majority female. So there That's was probably more women than men studying on the course. Yeah. Um, one trip to Iceland, there was a large number of people on the trip. There were two guys on the trip. Everyone else was female. Wow. Um, and so there yeah. is an interest. Yeah, there's definitely an interest there. And sometimes people say these stupid comments like, oh, but girls, like, they don't want to get, like, dirty in the field <laughs> and stuff like this. And I'm like, I know plenty of guys who they don't want to go lying down in the sure. mud to take a photo. So it's not it's not a gender thing. And that's not the issue. I think the issue is just approachability. And yeah. I don't know exactly what it is, but... Um, is definitely like there's not much gender equality yeah, sure. um, across there and um i noticed like in terms of like really successful speakers graduates coming back to do speaking on the course it did seem like there were more men who came back to speak than women yeah, and which I doesn't make any sense if there are more women doing the course yeah um, so um, i don't know if that was just coincidence the year i was studying now whether it has changed but it did seem to be an issue um but of course like it's not like everyone's a problem. I definitely had some great support from like male photographers out there. So it's not everyone, and it's it's more and maybe an institutional problem or a, a national issue across many industries. Yeah. Um, but I'm really glad that there's now groups like female nature photography. Yeah. So group. I looked at that and I saw that you were part of that group, and that seems like a really good space for for you know to to promote women in nature photography for sure so how did you find out about them um it was actually when i was at university i was googling something and it it came up on a google search and um i just thought oh i better apply you know i had this attitude like you see an opportunity you take it every time sure. never miss an opportunity so i emailed and i said oh like can i apply and um it's arranged by it was organized by a lady in mauritius called stephanie manuel mm -hmm. um another stephanie yeah. um and she wanted to organize like a sort of networking group for people like-minded people because she didn't know many people in mauritius that were into the same thing and um, she also wanted to make, like, a female community just because, like, that's what she wanted to do. I'm not sure, like, the whole thoughts behind it. But it does give you, like, a, a nice space to bounce ideas off each other. Sure. And it does give you a platform. I think some people um, get a bit bitter about it. I've heard people say before, oh, you shouldn't have a group that's just women because that's worsening the problem because it's um, excluding men. But... Um, there's also some of my friends have said, yeah, but that's a silly argument because actually it's just trying to bridge the gap and minimise the divide about sure. the fact that women do need to have, like, these opportunities and it does give us the opportunity. And I've definitely found, like, I've been invited to do public speaking through being on female nature photography. Yeah, well, that's brilliant, isn't it? Um, and it seems like it's a space where, you know, I mean, it's not like you're not going to be taken seriously at every networking event you go to, but if you do have those experiences, it's probably is nice to be able to go to a space where you will be taken seriously and not patronised. Um, yeah. That's, yeah, and that, that's really good. And it's also great for, like, when I was doing the Nat Geo expedition to Poland, 
I wanted to know a bit more about the forest I was going to. And so I can just message on female nature photography. Mm -hmm. There's a Polish member that we have members all over the world. Mm. There's a Polish member. And then I can just chat to her. She's friends with some wildlife rangers. She put me in touch with wildlife rangers we could interview for the Nat Geo project. And it just means, you know, it just gives you that chance. And it's kind of, um, it just seems like a safe space to do that. Like, um, like it just is quite nice to be able to just contact because normally it's quite hard. Yeah, um, sure. And it sounds like just one of many networking things that you've got going on that is just different. And that's that's great. And it's nice that, like you've mentioned it being a safe space. I think that is really important. Um, and, you know, just quickly moving on from that, because I thought about, you know, your successes and getting recognition is that you um, got an image last year in the British Wildlife Photography Awards as well, which is amazing. Um, again, kind of so soon after after graduating, you know, to get success in, you know, really prestigious competition. That was, you must have been over the moon to have gotten that. Yeah, it's actually really funny because it was actually in even my, it was when I was at university that I entered. And um, I wasn't I wasn't going to enter at all. But then one of my friends, he messaged me and he said, oh, Steph, like, this is closing in two days. Why don't you enter? And I was like, oh, I'm not really sure. You know, <laughs> I'm not sure my pictures are good enough for competitions just yet. And he just said, oh, you may as well. You know, he said the black and white category barely gets any <laughs> entries. Why not enter that one? Why not put? And he said, like, oh, why not put any pictures in? So then I did, and um, and it was quite funny because the picture that got highly commended, I'd actually almost deleted. Wow. Which was just crazy. That's such so, a good lesson for listeners yeah. to learn, isn't it? So I put, like, I can't remember how many images, just a small selection, and one of them was this puffin from Skoma Island that I took on a university and field trip. And did you trip. almost not go on that trip as well? Yeah, I almost... The other thing was, it was, it was honestly, like, the day or two days before the trip was going to happen... And someone dropped out, they were sick. So they were like, oh, there's this space on the trip going for cheap. And I just thought, oh, well, I may as well go then. And so I went, it was supposed to be like a third year trip or something. And I was in the year below. Right. So, um, but I ended up going and it was really good. And um, yeah, so I got this picture. I wasn't really sure I was going to use it. I, I was trying to photograph puffins in a different way. So like that was... They're one of the most photographed species of course. on um, islands, like one of the most photographed birds. Um, but I want to sort of show like an elegant puffin picture rather than sort of like, because often they're portrayed as like a bit clown-like appearance <laughs> with their feet being like giant slippers or something. Yeah. Um, and so I thought black and white worked for that. Yeah. That's so, that's so cool. And all these sequence of events that kind of lined up to help you and you know the lesson of like not deleting and I I hear that story so many times about people that win competitions you know they enter stuff that they think is going to do really well and then the kind of other stuff the incidental stuff they put into the competition that's the stuff that wins so that's a kind of like insider tip for anyone who's you know entering competitions entering competitions one is just keep entering them because you never know and you know enter stuff that you you know I think another really important thing is always to get other people to look at your work you know and your friend did you a favor as well you know why don't you enter your puffing stuff and that's really important too but it's great I mean I think you know winning I've I've had a few um, images and competitions and it doesn't change your life but it's a really nice thing you know I mean for years I've you know you can write award-winning photographer on your CV and it, it, it you do, it does help to get you know that kind of recognition you know Andy Parkinson is 
I think he pretty much owns that competition. He's won so many awards in it, and it's great, and it's a really nice way to get publicity and get your work recognised. And you think about also the thousands and thousands of images that get entered, and then yours gets selected. It's it's a it's a it's a really good feeling. Yeah, and I think it just gives you like credibility with yeah. employers, and um, when you're looking for jobs, and even if you're not. Um, doing work for say wildlife stuff if you can say you know if you won awards for your photography even in commercial work that's going to help you yeah so it helps people on a number of levels I think yeah brilliant um I know you wanted to um say some thanks to a few people that have helped support you um over your your career and you know since you've been since you've graduated and maybe while you were studying as well so we're going to come to an end but I'll let you do that and then we'll wrap up yeah so there were just a few people like there's so many people to thank like my family and friends for a start for like supporting my work but also Amy Shutt who's the founder of the Canid Project and she's basically served as like a mentor since graduation she's been wonderful she, her enthusiasm is contagious brilliant and I'm sure anyone who's met her would say that um Neil Aldridge who gave me endless advice um and he's now a lecturer on our course but he's always supportive of everyone and um Pamela Abbott who's the CEO of the Norfolk Wildlife Trust now because she's given me loads of advice about being back in Cambridge about things to do with like conservation side of things yeah help put me in touch with some really great people in Cambridge and um just advice about conservation jobs and job applications so they're just a few people who have really like made it easier the transition from university to uh, the real world, yeah. as my lecturer liked to call it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's lovely. And again, it just shows that it is also a, a team game. And even though it's like a solitary thing, and you know, whenever you see whatever the diary series at the end of Planet Earth, you see this lone cameraman. But of course, behind that, you know, there's producers, editors, and there's no end of people that working together to produce this stuff. So it's really nice to have mentors and have people um, you know, even just, you know, we talked about the generosity also of this community um, in nature photography. Um, you, I think sometimes we just forget to ask for help, um, but but it is out there and that's, that's really great to hear that you got a lot of support um, in this last year. Um, you know, one of the things I, I ask all my um, guests is, you know, advice to younger photographers. And I almost feel like I could ask you that question as well because you've done so much already, um, you know, in your young career. Um, but I was also interested in what your hopes, wishes and dreams are and what, you know, you have in your head. Do you think about like what you'd like to do in 10 years or 20 years? Do you think about that? Yeah, I do very much so. Like, I know 100% that I want to do visual, do something visually creative to support conservation and wildlife. Um, but more recently I've got into video as well as photography. So ideally I'd love to be doing both video and photography, um, to support both national and international wildlife conservation efforts. Mm -hmm. And I've actually been looking at jobs recently where working with charities to produce visual content, um, because that would just be an amazing thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and just to be able to find the funding and earn enough to be able to pursue this full time is mm-hmm. just the ideal dream. Yeah. Um, and my advice to any other young people out there trying to get into wildlife photography, filmmaking or similar is just make sure you 
um, go to networking events. Just even if it's just a talk, like in your local church or something, you sometimes have people doing like little talks about wildlife conservation or or like something even not really to do with photography. Sure. Just go, speak to everyone. And, and genuinely, just let your genuine enthusiasm come across. Don't just hand them a business card and be done with it. Like, actually talk to people yeah. and talk to everyone because it can be someone who's completely nothing to do with your industry that gives you these chances. Sure. And they might sponsor you or help you out in some way. And, and that's the way forward. And also, don't be afraid to apply to, like, grant-giving bodies. So a lot of photographers, they do their projects with grants. So, like, a piece of money given to them for their project and there's a lot of those you can enter when you're like under 25 or there's ones for students and if you enter those some of them they'll give you like three thousand pounds just to do a project or they'll give you more and and just really enter those and, yeah. and just try and um get advice from people as well like don't be afraid to approach someone and build relationships don't say don't message someone be like oh, how can I get a job for National Geographic? Because they probably get a thousand people asking that. But ask something, you know, simple that is a small thing and just build up friendships with people because that's, that's it's very much who you know yeah. um, as much as what you know, really. Stephanie, it's been really lovely talking to you and um, thanks so much for your time. And I'm really excited to see. You seems like you're spinning plates at the moment of all these different projects and how they come to fruition and what they lead on to. And I'm sure we'll be hearing about you a lot um, more in the future. And um, we will, yeah, we'll put up your website and links to all your social media um, so we can all find out what you're up to. And um, yeah, we'll look forward to hearing more. Thanks so much. Wow, we covered a lot today and I love Stephanie's enthusiasm and passion for storytelling with her images and I can't wait to see how all her projects, both stills and video, come to fruition. It's also great to hear how she just gets out there to network and meet people. You know, it's one thing producing great content and posting it on social media and getting great feedback, but visiting conservation institutions or photography and film festivals to meet and talk to people you may well be looking for photographers and give you a break like Stephanie got with the Rangers Without Borders project. It's such a good lesson to learn. So to see more of Stephanie's work, you can visit her website, which is stephaniefoot.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-F-O-O-T-E.com. You can follow her on Instagram, which is at stephfootphoto, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash steph.foot, again, with an E. Nine. To find out more about me, you can visit my website. It's matthewmoran.com. My Instagram handle is at mattmoranphoto. I will also this year be attending the Wild Screen Film Festival, which is the 15th to the 19th of October. It's also really exciting to go back to the birthplace of this podcast, uh, where it began in Bristol two years ago. And I've got a couple more interviews lined up when I'm down there and Stephanie is also going to be there too there's an extra day of photography which has been added uh, which will be really good and a great opportunity to see some of the world's best photographers and filmmakers talk about their work behind the scenes see what's going on with the latest technology uh, there's of course the Panda Awards which are also known as the Green Oscars uh, all sorts of other events and you know Bristol really is the 
the heart of natural history filmmaking so it's going to be a lot of fun hopefully see you down there and that's it it would be really helpful if you left a review on itunes and spread the word about this podcast so i can keep it going keep the interest going it's certainly a lot of fun and um, i'm looking forward to the next one thanks very much and see you then bye bye